Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Jeffrey Moore. He's just published an excellent book. I didn't read the totality of it, but I read a lot of it. The title of the book is The Quiet Houses, Fall of the Narcs. It was published August 2022. And Jeff Morris transitioned to law enforcement after finding himself unemployed from his comfortable suburban job as a graphic artist. He started his law enforcement career as a police officer in Kansas City, Missouri. In 1999. In 2003, he was promoted to a narcotics detective with the KCPD Street Narcotics Unit. He spent a year undercover as a street junkie, visiting violent drug houses throughout Kansas City, working alongside his informant, Tamara Josephine Mack, a boisterous, streetwise African American woman. Together, they knocked on hundreds of doors, attempting to gain entry to purchase drugs from within. Their contentious friendship was built from the necessity of survival in a sea of lost souls and dangerous men. And that story is told in this book, The Quiet House's Fall of the Narcs. Almost two decades later, Jeff is currently a DEA special agent in Detroit, Michigan. He is, uh, he's done a New York Times interview and he was played. Uh, Leo Sharp became the basis for Clint Eastwood's movie, The Mule, where Leo, the character was portrayed, portrayed by Clint Eastwood, and Jeff's character was portrayed by Bradley Cooper. And I'll put a link to his production house, which is All of Stone Productions, and uh, Joffrey Littlefield is the is the publisher. So I'll put that in there. He also has an active Instagram page, so I'll put a link to the Instagram page as well. But again, the title of the book, Quiet House is Fall of the Narcs, very first-person accounts. He's really lived very... Interesting life, so I'm glad to have them here today. So, Jeffrey Moore, welcome to the show. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, for people who may not have heard of you, may not have seen the movie The Mule, can you kind of start it off? I know you cover a lot of this in the book, but can you go back in your life before entering law enforcement and what it was like to get started at the uh, Kansas City Police Department? Yeah, I... I've had an interesting career and I, I never imagined myself to be in the position I am now working for the drug enforcement administration uh, and being a police officer for that matter. Um, I went to a small trade school out of Pittsburgh, Kansas, and I graduated with a degree in graphic arts. I was an illustrator, uh, worked for advertising agencies and just did a lot of commercial illustration and stuff like that. Um, it was, uh, I was in a point where the market was turning a little bit and the, the company I worked for ended up going out of business. I had a brand new baby, uh, and a, and a new wife. Uh, luckily I found another job pretty quickly. Um, that one lasted for about three months. And then again, I was out of work and it was just kind of a time frame where it was hard for, uh, people to make a, a decent living at doing it was kind of like a, a little mini like recession right there, right yeah, before it, 2000. It was a recession um, for that recession. That, what I was doing as a graphic. And uh, I was just, I was desperate for a job and I didn't really have a lot of time to look for um, something. And so I was, I remember going through the Kansas City Personals and there was an advertisement that said, if you become a police officer, we'll pay your academy at six months. And I just said, fine, I'll, I'll do this uh, for a year. I'll get, you know, on my feet and pay the bills and um, get through this period of my life. And then kind of get back to what I was doing. 
and uh, six months turned to a year, a year turned to two years. And before I know it, um, I ended up being a police officer for police officer for four years. And uh, what was it inter- like being? What was it like being like an introductory police officer? Somebody who may not have been, you know, studied criminology or something like that. Getting uh, right into police. It, it it was just I had never really seen the real world per se. Um, I kind of grown up in the Midwest, a very suburban middle-class family. Um, I ended up being assigned to uh, the Eastern side of Kansas City, Missouri, which was pretty, it was pretty rough. There was a lot of crime and homicides at the time. And, uh, and I got, I got, I got into this um, different world that I had never seen before. And it was definitely um, an eye opener about how, you know, rough some people have it in life. And, um, and just, yeah, not everybody made it too, right? That introductory class that you had, not everybody. Yeah. It's, it's a little like it is now where there's a really high turnover rate with police officers, especially in, um, inner, inner cities where it's, it's pretty dangerous. Uh, A lot of people, um, they go into it with a perception of what it's going to be like. And then when they're actually doing it, it's just, it's not as glamorous as they thought it would be. And it is, it is very uh, difficult. Sometimes the work is, is hard and you end up seeing a lot of things that were uh, in my eyes were pretty disturbing as far as uh, people suffering and the the violence and stuff like that. Um, Towards the end of my four years as a patrol cop, I, I started enjoying working narcotics um, and that was something I was interested in doing. And so I ended up uh, making it to a, a really small specialized unit within the police department called the Street Narcotics Unit. Uh, its acronym was SNU for short. And this little unit of undercover cops had one uh, purpose, and that was basically to close down as many drug houses as possible. And they, they wouldn't even call them drug houses back then. They called them nuisance houses. And at this, at this time, Kansas City was having a lot of uh, problems with inner city drug houses. Um, you know, people were in these neighborhoods and they would have two or three drug houses on their streets. And it was just um, really a difficult situation because cr- crack was huge and, and meth was starting to pick up. So they tasked this unit that I belong with, that I was in, um, to basically try to uh, knock on as many doors as possible of these drug houses. You basically purport yourself to be a drug addict, and you try to get into these houses. You would get tip sheets from, um, you know, 800 police tip lines. You know, people would call and say, hey, there's a drug house on my street. Um, sometimes informants would give us tips saying, hey, there's a guy in there named Charles. If you ask for Charles, he'll let you in and, and you can, um, we'll get into the house that way. So it was a period of a year where I spent undercover and I had basically kind of dissolved my person, my persona as a police officer and then transitioned to just this really, in the end, this derelict drug addict where I was um, going into two or three drug houses a week and I would go into these houses, purchase drugs make my way out of the house and then three days later three days later 
they would do a search warrant on the house and um, sometimes it would close the house. Sometimes it would slow it down, but it was, it was a way of kind of tamping down the drug activity in, in, in that area or on that street. And what was it like going undercover and how did you take on that persona? And what did you learn? Like you learn certain things, the watchers and how it works inside those houses, right? Yeah. It's, um, you know, all these houses are pretty different. Some, some are pretty horrific and, and, and some aren't as difficult as others, but you go through a, a training program with guys that have actually done this for a while. And they, they give you a lot of um, advice on, some of the things you need to um, utilize when you go in these houses. Uh, obviously, when you go in these places, you the quicker you can get out of them, the, the safer it is. So you really don't want to stick around in these houses longer than you have to. And a lot of times, if you sit in these houses for a while, it's, it's a matter of time before someone in the house asks you to partake in drugs so that they are confident that you're not a police officer. And so we would always go into these houses with um, kind of a backstory of why we, why we couldn't stay that long or why we weren't able to, to use drugs while we're in there. Um, it, it would be anything from my daughter's out in the car. I'm taking her to school. I can't, I can't be high. Uh, I'm on probation. I have, to, I have to take a urine test tomorrow. I can't, I can't smoke this dope until the weekend. But you would you would always have a backstory before you went into the house um, to kind of expedite the reason you needed to get out of there quickly. And it was just it was really strange because once you walked into these places, you could kind of feel time slow down, and you just you kind of realized how dangerous it was because the longer you, you sat in there, it was just kind of a recipe for something bad to happen to you so it was just get in make your buy and then get out of these houses right and, and that was like the, the era of like crack too right it was happening right around yeah the- it was just crack was everywhere um there were people just literally s- sitting in bus stops smoking it it was just it was really um destroying families all across the midwest and it was no one really knew how to kind of get a control on the problem because it was, it was just such an addictive substance and it was so cheap. I and mean, it was eight, it was eight dollars was the average price people were paying for a crack rock. And um, you would have to smoke it all day long because the effects were so temporary. I mean it would last you 30 minutes and then you'd have to run out and, and grab more crack to continue smoking throughout the day. Um, Right. So, and that kind of you being around that kind of led to you. I think it was uh, some guy drunk in public or kind of led you to meeting this woman, Tamara Mack, right? Can you yeah. talk about that? Uh, in full disclosure, I, this book, it, it's not a flattering uh, betrayal of the drug war at all. It's probably the opposite. And it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't really successful. In, and it had, it had good intentions, but it, it a lot of times these houses were, were opened up the next week. You know, they, we would shut them down for a week and they were, they were up and running the next week. But I started um, getting into this. I started um, basically changing my persona to this drug addict. Uh, I wasn't really doing a great job. I was getting rejected on these houses. They wouldn't let me in. Guys were calling me a, a, a narc on the street. 
And um, I just wasn't really in the mindset to make this happen. And so I had a supervisor that was, um, he was, a, he was a, a great cop and he knew the streets and he was like, Hey, I can't, I can't have you in this unit if you're not getting these doors. And so he ended up assigning me to work with this informant um, in Tamara Mack. And she, she uh, had been on the street for the majority of her life. She was, um, had been in, in and out of jail, different, you know, uh, problems with drugs and stuff like that. But she was, she was very good at getting into these houses and she was really good at teaching uh, guys like myself how to buy drugs. <laughs> but um, she, she was a little bit eccentric um, and she was uh, kind of a boisterous woman and, and it was kind of a contentious relationship at the beginning where she really, she really didn't have a lot of tolerance for a lot of the failures that I was going through. And I didn't really have a lot of tolerance for some of the things that she was wanting me to do. So it was, it was kind of give and take for a while, but eventually she kind of, she showed me the ropes, um, taught me how to get into these houses and and basically uh, keep myself alive in the process while doing it. (laughs) And how long did you, how long, how many years was it that you were doing? Uh, uh, I, I did this for a solid year and um, I, I, I've been working narcotics for 20 years and, and obviously I'm in the DEA now and during this time frame it was just it was kind of fly by the seat of your pants it was a little bit um, unsafe it, it wasn't as supervised as things are now today with undercover work and stuff like that and, and there was days where Tammy and I would just jump in our car and roll around all day long and, and knock on doors. And um, you were kind of at the mercy of your wits to get out of these houses. And we had uh, undercover body wires. If, you know, if you got locked in the house and they wouldn't let you out, you could always give a signal and if somebody could, uh, a tactical team could extract you and stuff like that. Um, but it, it was, it was very cowboyish during this time. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I would never do this again. Or, and I, I'm glad things are different now. It's a little less dangerous. I'm not sure that that drug house environment existed until that time, though, right? I mean, it was these pop up, uh, um, open air drug things. I don't know if they existed. Maybe our heroin buying or something like that. Yeah, it's just the drug street level drugs have kind of changed. Um, throughout the years and then it, it, it kind of goes on cycles. A lot of times it's more on street corners. Um, when I was doing this in 2003, um, there were a lot of slum lords that were really letting anybody live in their houses and not really doing background checks. It, it was getting to be a problem with a lot of home, a lot of houses in these um, low income neighborhoods that were, um, basically turning into just really active drug houses. And, and these guys would basically take over the whole street where it was just miserable for all the families that lived on the street. So it, it was, it was it, at the time, it was a priority for the police department that they really wanted to reduce the amount of nuisance houses that were, that were popping up. 
Right. They kind of avoided calling them a drug house, right? They didn't really want to say that. Yeah, it was real political. But we, we couldn't call them drug houses. We called them nuisance houses, even though they were 100% drug houses. <laughs> right. And can you talk about, like, it was an eight-man unit, right? Can you talk about some of the stories or some of the crazy stuff that you saw? I mean, there's uh, pretty, there's a lot, there was a lot of violence around there, right? A lot of danger. Yeah, it's, I, I collected a lot of the, the stories that we had gone through, and a lot of the drug dealers in the story are, they're from real individuals. Obviously, we changed their names and stuff like that, and, um, and there was just, you never really knew who was behind the door once you got in there. And it was, it was such a, it was such a strange environment. Um, I remember going to, a, into a house that was, it was just really, um, just a really rundown house. It was just really dirty. And it was just, it looked like the dregs of society would be inside this house. And I get into the house and I'm in this back room on this bed with all these addicts and we're passing around a pipe and talking about crack and the, there's a guy sitting next to me in a three-piece suit that has literally got off work from a Fortune 500 company that's in this house with me smoking crack. And so, you know, the, the point of the story is, like, you know, you would see um, career drug addicts that were, you know, down to their last dollar in these places, but then you would see guys that had just, gotten overtaken by drugs they had given up their families and, and they were in the process of living losing their jobs and kind of spiraling down and you would just see you would see people in different stages of drug addiction and these houses kind of they basically provided a safe environment for the people that were known to the house and, and if you were willing to spend money um you're allowed to stay in there and smoke as long as you wanted and some guys were spending $500 a day inside these houses wow. just all day long, just sitting there smoking. And how much money do you think some of these houses were generating? Like in the cash? Uh, it, we, we took over a crack house. Um, we took it over and we put our undercovers in the house and ended up selling imitation crack. And we, we basically gauged that the typical drug house during that time was, going through a kilogram of crack a week minimum and then at the time you know a kilo of crack was 35 40,000 but once you break it down into street value it's it's much more than that so it, it was it was very lucrative um the people that uh, knew how to mix the crack and, and basically create it and who were the type of people who ran these houses I mean, did you um, kind of get it over? Yeah, there's always um, in drug trafficking. There's always a tier of different types of dealers. Um, at the lowest level are guys that are usually drug addicts themselves. Guys that are using the drugs that they're selling. They're they usually deal in, in small gram quantities. And then you have a little higher level of guys that are uh, selling ounce levels that are uh, supplying these drug houses in those guys are usually younger guys in their early twenties. They're kind of starting out in their careers. Um, and that's, it's actually the most dangerous level because these guys are very violent and they're just getting started and they, they really um, can't take a loss of their product. They can't lose their drugs because they're really not established. And then, in the, and then where I'm at now, it's, it's, 
guys that are you know moving anywhere from one to 20 kilos of cocaine or heroin a month and those those are your top level guys that are at the kilo level um, right and there's a lot of trance like you tell stories of the drugs coming and flowing through right being trans can you talk about the kind of multi-jurisdictional travel i mean how the drugs are coming in where the money's yeah. going yeah um it's a lot of guys make it really complicated it's really a two-sided coin um drugs flow northeast and money flows southwest and it all uh ends up at the nexus which is the southern u.s border that's where the majority of our drugs are coming from um now things are different with fentanyl fentanyl's changed a lot of things and how drugs move but you know, for the last 40, 50 years, it was kind of the same equation where you would have uh, semi-trucks and large vehicles um, crossing the southern border um, 50 to 500 kilos at a time. They would end up in source cities like Chicago, um, Philly, uh, New York. And then these, at these source cities, um, they were offloaded and then divided into smaller networks and... Um, it was just kind of a kind of a hierarchy chain of distribution. Is it? I'd hate to use this uh, comparison, but it's it's literally like a pyramid scheme where at the top you have one guy, and your top guy may only have two or three customers. But as you get further down the pyramid, the guys at the bottom have more customers. Uh, the guys on the street that are selling bags, they, they sell to people all day long that they don't know. Um, but, the really big guys that are doing 50 to kilo, 50 to kilo, 50 to hundred kilos a month. They usually have two or three customers and, and they, they won't deal with anybody, anyone that they don't know. Right. And so it's just this huge amount getting deeper and deeper. It gets cut more and more. Did you ever, when you were in Kansas city, were you seeing this whole growth of uh, crack and drug houses on a nationwide level? Or was it just something that you felt like you were, just working kind of on your, um, in your local jurisdiction? You know, I at the time, I was really seeing, um, I was just seeing the lowest levels of it, and it was just, I hadn't even seen the tip of the iceberg with how much money this whole thing generates. Um, it, when I became a DEA agent in 2004, uh, my first big case was a pilot flying between Texas and Detroit, and he was putting 10 to 20 kilos on his airplane, her trip and we ended up arresting him at the Detroit uh, downtown city airport. He got off the plane. He had two suitcases and a silk shirt. It, it literally looked like an episode off Miami vice. Wow. We arrested this pilot and um, we ended up opening his bags. He had 20 kilos of Coke in there. And I was so naive. I literally thought we won the drug war. Like I thought it was over. I thought like this was all the drugs in the city and guys were laughing at me and they said this, this is just a normal day here in Detroit. <laughs> wow. So you, you don't really realize the quantities um, until you see a little bit higher up on the chain. But, um, it's just really eye-opening. As a DE agent, do you look on, do you see at the higher levels of the chain much more professionals or maybe upper middle yeah. class type people? Can you talk yeah, about that? It's, uh, it's very... Um, it's more, more business and it's less, believe it or not, it's less violence in the movie. You would think, 
you know, when you're watching Breaking Bad, everyone's getting killed. And it's not really like that domestically. In, in Mexico, it is. It's very dangerous. But domestically, um, when, you're, when you're doing a transaction with someone for a million dollars worth of drugs, you've usually dealt with that person for several years. You know them, you know their family, um, and there's trust already established. So it's just a matter of um, logistics of, you know, how are they going to do the transaction and, and avoid detection of the police? And it's just a little bit more, it's more of a, a business endeavor. And then the other side of the coin is how do you hide this much money? Because a lot of these guys, um, we've seen guys in their mid to early 20s that are already millionaires, you know, and when you're that young, how do you hide millions of dollars worth of drug money? And so that's that's part of the, um, the challenges, kind of chasing the trail of money to find these guys. Right. And so, I mean, that's part of the whole thing is like they can make the money, but what do they do with it? What What is your experience in, you know, trying to to stop, you know, try to ob- obtain those funds, right? Isn't it there like some laws within the DEA that you can... What's the word? It, it was, it was, it was interesting because uh, in the early days, when I got to Detroit, a lot of the big players were putting money into Bentleys and really expensive jewelry. I mean, guys would have watches and um, necklaces worth worth six figures, and all the money was going into a lot of these things that were very visible. And then the DEA started chasing a lot of these assets and then seizing them and stuff like that. And then now a lot of these guys are less flashy just to bring less, less attention to themselves. And um, it's just, yeah. the word I was trying to remember was forfeiture, right? Are there forfeiture? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're, you know, half of our work is forfeiture going after, after the assets that are derived from all the sales of the drugs, which, uh, end up going back to the government. And what's the, what's the difference like being on the street and then being working for this very large agency DEA? I mean, how how would you define the differences between those two roles? Um, you know, I, I I had a lot of fun um, doing the undercover stuff in Kansas City, and I really it was just unbelievably excitable working with Tammy and just going in these houses and. I was kind of a young guy then. I didn't really, wasn't as cautious as I am now about things. And now it's just, I see a different picture of everything because um, I'm seeing just kind of more of how much of this stuff comes into the United States. Um, You know, obviously we're at 107,000 deaths uh, this year for opiate related or legal drugs, most of them being opiates and fentanyl. Uh, we're projected by 2024 to have uh, close to 146,000 deaths if, if the progression continues. So it, it, it's just, it's more concerning to me because the drug's more powerful. Uh, fentanyl, we've had career heroin addicts die the first time they use a, use a fentanyl tablet. Um, meth is the P2P method of cooking meth in Mexico and the super labs is now so strong it causes mental illness after using it for a year or two it it literally rewires your brain because this meth is so absolutely uh, intensely strong 
So the, the drugs are m much more harmful, I think, than, than ever before. The fentanyl is being made in either China or somewhere else or Mexico, right? Is that correct? Yeah, there's um, originally it, it came from China as fentanyl, and now precursor chemicals are sent out of China to Mexico where it can be um, completed in Mexico. And then now we're seeing um, guys with pill presses that are, that are creating these tablets of imitation fentanyl pills. And, and recently, last week, they were uh, recovering some of these things that look like Skittles and candies. And it, it almost seemed like they were marketing these to children. So in the DEA right now, there's, there's a huge push to really educate uh, how how dangerous one of these pills can be. Right, and isn't, isn't the fentanyl pills, don't they usually like scrape them and take smaller doses? And it's kind of different than Oxycontin. Is that right? Yeah, it's just you're, when you get these pills, you don't, um, there's a certain amount of micrograms of fentanyl that is lethal to you. And I know some organizations in Mexico were actually trying to, create these pills where they weren't killing people, but it gets uh, into the hands of people along the chain of distribution. And some guys end up uh, mixing the drugs again and um, repackaging them. And then in, in the end, you really don't know what you're getting and how much fentanyl is in that one dosage unit. So you could be getting a dosage unit that's completely lethal or, or one that perhaps you could survive, but you, you never know really. I mean, it's incredible. It's like that yeah. just never existed when I was a kid. So do you think that there really are targeting teenagers and young kids with this, this drug? Yeah, it's just, unfortunately, um, it's, it's like a business, you know, where you have to keep building your client base. And um, I, I remember seeing where in Michigan, there wasn't a lot of meth at the time. It was, mostly Coke and heroin has always been the, the mainstay of Detroit. And when meth started becoming popular in Detroit, uh, these organizations out of Mexico would end up sending, you know, 10 kilos of Coke and then they would throw in a kilo of meth for free. They would say, Hey, they would tell the dealers in Detroit, Hey, we want to start selling this in your state, you know, try to get this to your customers, see if they like it. So there, there is marketing where they try to, get a lot of these drugs out to, to areas where it's not as popular as before. So they're trying to lure them in. To yeah. Giving free drugs away. Is that it? Yeah. yeah at the time. Yeah, it was. <laughs> um, we are at the 30 minute mark, Jeff. Yes. Can you, are you available to take a few questions? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Brian McBrien asked, does DA ever quote reuse unquote some forfeiture items like cars and jewelry or just sell it? No, that's a great question, Brian. Um, in the early days when I was here, um, most uh, drug traffickers owned really nice cars, and we would seize those, and a lot of times we would put them into service. We would use them as an undercover car or uh, even just use them as a work vehicle. And then after a while, guys caught on to that, and so everyone started leasing their cars, and we weren't able to seize those, but... It, Anytime we do make a forfeiture, uh, it has to be at a threshold where it has to be a certain level of value. And 
the court examines uh, the forfeiture, whether there was probable cause to take it in the first place. And, there, and there's always, it's not automatic. There's always a court hearing where the person can contest it and come to court and say, hey, I, I have legitimate funds to have this bulk currency. And in some cases, we have to give it back. Interesting. What's the most you've ever seen forfeited? Um, my largest seizure uh, was $1.9 million in bulk cash out of a, a motorhome, which was part of the movie The Mule. Um, and it was a, it was a motorhome making direct runs between Tucson and Detroit. And it had two hidden spots. And in every trip, there was usually 2 to $8 million hidden in this vehicle. Wow. And um, when we hit it, there was $2 million in it. It's just yeah. huge amounts of money. It's really amazing. Yeah. I, 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 we had a search warrant one time where the house was completely empty. And in the center of the kitchen was this big uh, plastic tote tub, like the kind you'd buy at Walmart. And we lifted off the lid and there was $3 million inside of it. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Yeah, this house was totally empty. It was just a stash house for money. I'd heard that. I've heard that that's what uh, Pablo Escobar, he just had stash houses that he, or apartments where he would just put his money. He didn't know what to do with it. So it sounds like that, that happens in the States. Joker asked, which were the worst gangs in that area when you worked in uh, Kansas City? Um, yeah, I, I, I wasn't part of the gang unit, so I didn't really... Um, there were some pretty dangerous uh, gangs. And the deal with the the thing with gangs is they basically are divided into neighborhoods and that that's what defines them more than anything else is they control certain parts of the city. And there were, there were parts of the city that were a little bit more dangerous just to be in because these guys were located there. Um, but I, I really, um, that wasn't really my thing. I was just, all they would do for our unit is we were given tip sheets of drug houses and it didn't matter what part of the city it was in. We would actually just go to that house, try to buy drugs and get out of there, regardless of any type of gang affiliation. And uh, I mean, we're sorry. Do you want to say something? Else? We are at the about 35 minute mark. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I, I missed before we wrap it up? No, um, no, I, I appreciate you having me. I think guys will love this book because the biggest thing I did when I created this book is I, I made the mechanics of everything in the book, actually how, how things work on the street. There's nothing in this book that would not happen in real life. It's everything in here is how things work inside drug houses, how people sell drugs, how people interact, how dangerous it is. Um, so when you go in, when you read this book, you're going to be, in these drug houses and see a lot of crazy things and a lot of interesting people. Yeah. I mean, you really get that first person view. Like you obviously lived it. It's not telling the story of, you know, so, so, and so police officer or something like you are in it doing the stuff and the yeah. firsthand accounts and the violence. It's all really there. And I, it's really well, well written, like as a first person. Thing. I appreciate Where, it. Where's the best place to get the book, Jeff? Um, it's just, it's on Amazon. You can just literally, uh, you can Google the quiet houses, follow the narcs. You can go to Amazon, type in the quiet houses. Um, I've got an Instagram page 
uh, called The Quiet Houses with a period between the and uh, quiet. And there's a link on it. Um, but it's, it's not difficult to find. It's free on Kindle right now. And uh, the paperback's not very expensive. Yeah, if you have, if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free. Yeah, you can right, exactly. Do you have a... Uh, does this have... Yeah, there it is. And you have hardcover, paperback edition. You have 23 five-star ratings right now, so <laughs> people have definitely liked and enjoyed reading it. Yeah. Congratulations. No, and again, yeah, so, uh, and again, the title of the book is The Quiet Houses, Fall of the Narcs. Yes, just sir. published August 2022. Author is Jeffrey Moore. Thanks so much for your time, Jeff. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, take care. Stay there.